0: So, good evening. So this evening I'd like to talk, speak to a little of where you are right now in the retreat and also to give a context for our practice, for Dharma practice, by talking about the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which is a very central teaching to uh, Buddhist practice. I'm gonna start with um, talking about the I think why we sometimes uh, get tripped up when we come to a meditation retreat because we have all kinds of expectations and ideas about what meditation is, what retreat is, uh, what we'll expect, and all kinds of, usually quite high expectations and standards that we that we bring partly from the culture and the misunderstanding of what meditation is. This is a, a magazine cutting from... Uh, uh, actually, it's a, it's a sales magazine. It has a picture of a woman me- levitating with some headphones and meditating, and it says at the top, "In 28 minutes, you'll be meditating like a Zen monk." And, and goes on to list all the great things that will happen: the five-level ultra meditation system for transcendence, peak experiences, and discovering your place in the universe, <laughs> all in 28 minutes. So you've been here a lot longer than 28 minutes and I don't know if you're experiencing those five levels of (laughs) (laughs) ultra-transcendence big experience. So we sell these after the retreat if you want the quick phrase. (laughs) (laughs) No, what you're seeing, it takes a lot longer to practice. Whatever a Zen monk does when he practices, she practices. It takes a lot longer to understand to settle, and to, and to see what it is to 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 dwell in the meditative, meditative life. And we all come here, as, as we've said, and as uh, Heather was saying yesterday, we come from the, the busyness, and the craziness, and the, the fullness, and the complexity of our lives, and we come to an environment that's very simple, that's very quiet, very slow, very bare. And so no wonder there's kind of a kind of a culture shock, and that you're in the process of unraveling and and, um, adjusting to. But I know um, sometimes even on the second day, you know, the first day often is is an arriving day, and we're tired and sluggish, and we think, oh good, the second day it's going to get better. And sometimes the second day is actually harder for some people. I know some people said today that um, they're still struggling with different things, with busy mind, painful body, uh, a mind that just won't sit still, and uh, the Doubting Mind coming up a lot. What am I still doing here? I still don't know what they're on about, and everybody else seems to be getting it, and um, two of my favorite comments from people who've been in that Doubting Mind place in the beginning of retreat. One was, um, I'd rather be at work. <laughs> and the second was, I could be sipping Chardonnay in a spa in Napa Valley. What am I doing here with painful knees? Or just the generic questioning of, you know, what has this navel-gazing got to do with anything, with my life, with the suffering of the world? And the reason we call these retreats intensive practice, intensive retreats, is because they're intensive in the sense of non-distraction. They're intensive in that there's no way to hide from yourself. I'm not sure you've managed to create a few creative strategies to do that, but mostly there's no hiding, there's no where to run, that we're just nakedly facing ourselves. And that's something we don't do in our, in our lives mostly, and we don't do in our culture. And it takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of strength to show up, to keep showing up. To you know, Meditation is really looking in the mirror, and we're doing that 24-7. And it's a very radical act in our culture, as you know, not many people would sign up to do this, to really look so nakedly at ourselves and to see what's here in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies. The French philosopher Louis Pasteur once said that most of the world's problems would be solved if people could learn how to sit by themselves in a room for a few hours doing nothing. So that's what we're doing. We're learning how to be with ourselves doing nothing and seeing what gets revealed. My favorite story is from a sister center on the East Coast in St. Meditation Society from a colleague of ours who was teaching there, who was living there at the time, um, was living above the kitchen and had this ruckus in the kitchen at three in the morning and came down. And there was some, uh, some retreatants in the kitchen cooking up a storm and the, there was one guy in the fridge and he was just putting his hand into a big box of dates. And my friend said, um, excuse me, can I help you? Are you looking for something? And the guy said, Oh, I'm looking for the maintenance department. <laughs> looking for distraction is what he was looking for. So it's hard to be here in that way. And we arrive with a lifetime of habit, a lifetime of patterns, a lifetime of reactivities and habitual tendencies. And we get to see those. There's a wonderful quote from Padmasambhava who said, If you want to understand your past, look to your present experience. If you want to understand your future, look to the present conditions. So we get to see how we've been living by the fruit of what's happening right now in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, and we get to see that. We get to see the patterns of thinking, of busyness, of planning, of restlessness. The good news with all of these teachings is that change is possible, that transformation is possible. That we're not stuck with what we've got. We can change, we can transform our minds, our hearts, our reality, our state of being. That's the good news. And it's important to remember that the practice is about seeing, understanding, and allowing transformation to happen. And, you know, these teachings come from the practice of the Buddha, some so many years ago, and uh, he also didn't have an easy time. He struggled, just like we struggle in our practice. He did ascetic practice for many years, which was very challenging. Even the night of his enlightenment, he was racked with doubts, with self-doubts, with doubts about his capacity to wake up. And through his efforts, through his perseverance, he was able to see, to understand, to wake up, to understand what it means to be human, what it it means to live according to the laws of human nature and the world that we live in. And he realized the possibility of living with a sense of freedom and peace, no matter what was happening. And he was still human, just because he attained awakening and attained enlightenment, he still got sick, he got old, he had back pain, He had to deal with difficult um, people. He was people who wanted to slander him. His cousin wanted to kill him. Um, It's not like after he got enlightened he just kind of sat in this cosmic nirvana and cruised. He still had difficult conditions, just as we always will have difficult conditions or conditions that are challenging in our lives as we get older and sicker and whatnot. But he found a way to be at peace and at ease in the middle of those conditions, and that's what this practice offers. It's not that we suddenly create the perfect reality, because that's impossible. But we learn how to navigate whatever reality we're dealt with with a sense of balance, of clarity, equanimity. This is a poem from Han Shan, who is a great um, monk and teacher, or Buddhist. Uh, ascetic, and um, hermit. He says, living in the mountains, my mind is ill at ease. All I do is grieve at the passing years. At great labor, I gathered the herbs of long life. But has all my striving made me an immortal? Broad is my garden and wrapped now in clouds. But the woods are bright and the moon is full. What am I doing here? Why don't I go home? I am bound by the spell of the cinnamon trees. So we have this great Buddhist writer, poet, teacher, who you can hear in the words. At the same time, there's also the questioning. What am I doing? It's not an easy, uh, single-track row. We don't just get on the groove and then fast train to Nirvana. It's a little more complicated than that. The good news, is that we have the most important quality already within us. We have the power, this quality of awareness, of wakefulness, of presence, of mindfulness. That is the single most important quality that we all possess that we need to understand ourselves, to understand what's going on, to understand how to be free of suffering. So after the Buddha's uh, awakening, he, after spending some time contemplating, so it said he went to uh, uh, give his first teaching to his fellow uh, ascetic uh, monks and disciples who he'd been practicing with for many years. And he gave um, the uh, Dharma Chakra, I can never pronounce this right, Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutta, uh, which is the, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma Sutta. And in that teaching he gave the teaching on the Four Noble Truths which became the the sort of the bedrock and the foundation of his teaching. (coughs) So I'm going to say a little about those and how they apply to our time here, how they apply to our practice, how they apply to our lives. They are the truth of suffering, that there's suffering in life, there's unsatisfactoriness in life, that there's causes to that suffering, that the ending, the cessation of that suffering is possible, and that there's a path leading to the end of suffering. That's the, that's the foundation of the teaching. So the first truth, there is dukkha. The dukkha is a Pali word, uh, and the, the direct translation, there's many translations. Dukkha means unsatisfactory. It means um, incapable of providing lasting fulfillment. It also means difficult to bear. Sometimes translated as suffering, The Buddha gave lots of analogies and metaphors. Uh, One of them was, um, since he was living in in the, the, the age of horse and carts, or bullock carts, he gave the analogy of riding on a bullock cart where the wheel is not perfectly round. So it's almost round but a little off. So every time there's one revolution of the wheel, you get a little bump. So it's that sense of not-quite-rightness, that everything seems okay, but it's not quite how we'd like it to be. And we all have that experience here in our lives where everything feels okay, but there's something that's just not quite right. The lights are just a little too bright in here. It's a little too cool, a little too warm. My blankets are a little too itchy. The beds are not quite soft enough. The pillow's a little hard, the food's great, but you know, if they only serve bacon in the morning, it's that sense of the unsatisfactory, that there's just slight, it's like an edge, it's a rub. And we also feel it existentially. We, we might have all the conditions in our lives feeling really useful, uh, but there's, we have that sort of the gnawing in our hearts of, yeah, but there's something more, there's something, something not quite satisfying, not quite fulfilling. My life isn't quite full enough in some way. I once went to a very fancy resort with a friend of mine. It was a very high-end resort, It's some kind of resort I never uh, can use your fort to go to, and they were paying, so I went. And um, it was a really nice room overlooking the ocean, very beautiful, and it was kind of what I would call a deluxe sort of suite. And my friend walks in, and the first thing that they notice is that there's dust on one of the tables. And it runs the finger along, oh, yeah. <laughs> and here we have this amazing view of the ocean, this great bed, and <laughs> oh, it's a little dusty in here. That's Dukkha. That's the unsatisfactory quality this conditioned world is incapable of providing. This is from Suzuki Roshi, about talking about working with difficulty, working with uh, this quality of, of unsatisfactoriness or suffering. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love, and then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. So our practice is learning to turn towards this truth. Most of our lives, we are running away from it. We're trying to avoid the fact that life is uh, unsatisfactory or incapable of fully providing exactly what we want. We're busily trying to fix it and create this perfect world, which keeps changing, and we keep jiggling. Well, if I just get these three other pieces together, and my livelihood, and my partner, and this and that, and and of course everything, something keeps falling away. And it's like, oh no! Well, I just get that one done, and then, you know, and then we're ninety, and then we die. So the Buddha talked about. Um, different things that constitute this quality of suffering. We talked about old age being suffering, sickness being suffering, death being suffering, not getting what we want, losing what we have, being separated from that which we love. And uh, you know, the list could be endless of all the different things that cause suffering. Not getting what we want. Is there anybody here who has gotten everything that they want in life? There's always some kind of itch, there's always a rub. Losing what we have, losing our health, or our age, or our vitality, or loved ones, or friends, or status, or money. Very common experiences and cause a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. Being separated from that which we love. Being separated, I said being separated either from those that we love being separated from that which we love. I think the most painful thing that causes separation is being separated from the truth of who we are, being separated from the truth of our nature, not knowing ultimately who we are, believing ourselves to be our thoughts, ideas about ourselves, usually negative ones. Sometimes we think that if we're suffering and we're in pain, we must be doing something wrong, that it's our fault in some way. And it's important to really, you know, one of the values of, of going into, looking into our suffering, is we get to see the universal nature of pain. It's one of the things that actually most unites us, is this common shared sense or experience of pain, of loss, of anguish, of fear, of doubt, of loneliness, of emptiness. And it's also a profound dharmadur, it's what often inspires us, propels us to, to look for something that will heal, that will bring about transformation. I'm sure many of you are here on this retreat and have a meditation practice in response to life's challenges, to the struggle, to the anguish, to the pain, to the existential angst. I know that's what you know, when I was a young, angry punk rocker in London, and uh, was was convinced that the world was, was 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 the problem, and was you know was bashing my head on walls and trying to understand what why I was suffering so much that that propelled me to find an answer. You know, I stumbled across a meditation center, to my much to my relief and found some answers that I was looking for. <coughs> this, is from, uh, this is from Nisargadatta, wonderful Advaita teacher, Indian Advaita teacher. He says, the essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. If it's not acceptable, it's painful. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. I'll read that again. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self by its very nature is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern with its desires and feels Fears, fears, <laughs> enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So I love this passage and I read it a lot because it's so counterintuitive to us. We such the the, the conditioning to seek pleasure is so hardwired, and the conditioning to avoid pain is so hardwired. And yet what he's saying is that very movement doesn't serve us, that actually the leaning into, the becoming curious, the, the looking at, the understanding our pain, our suffering, our anguish, actually takes us really to a profound understanding. And whenever we are feeling pain, suffering, anguish, you know, or the list of the things that the Buddha talked about that, we can, that can cause us pain, it's our relationship to them that really is the criteria or the key point about whether we suffer or not. You know, I'm sure all of you, or many of you, experienced a lot of physical pain the last few days. And maybe sometimes you've been suffering a lot in the pain with resisting it and hating it and complaining and feeling self-pity and just hurting. And other times, maybe you've accessed a place where you can find some ease, some peace. Even though the body is hurting, the mind and the heart can can find a place of stillness. That it's not caught up, it's not fighting and struggling and resisting the reality of that moment. That's the possibility of freedom that we can know through mindfulness. Viktor Frankl puts it this way. He says, it's not the load that wears us down, but how we carry it. So we all have our load to carry, we all have our burden to bear. The question is, what do we do with it? How do we hold it? How do we relate to it? Well, Hafiz puts it this way, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. (laughs) You have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for God. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun to me. Let's start laughing and drawing blueprints. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them and mix them. So I think we spend a lot of time mixing the ingredients to turn our life into a nightmare. What do you think? So the first noble truth, dukkha, anguish, suffering, is to be understood. We need to turn towards it. We need to get closer. We need to understand it, stand under it. Ajahn Chah talks about how by running away from suffering, which is what we normally do, because it's unpleasant, we actually run towards it. You ever had that experience where you're trying to avoid something and get rid of something, and? Resist something, and it sort of comes back and smacks you in the face. Whether it's an emotion or a feeling or a difficulty in a relationship or a situation that you're just trying to avoid and avoid. And we think it's working, and then it sort of creeps around, and there it is, twice the size. And that's why this path takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to show up and to face what is difficult, what is what we don't want to face. It's a lovely quote that goes something like, it's a, it's, it's a brave person who wants to hear what he doesn't want to hear. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. To allow the truth of cessation to work, to allow the truth of cessation of suffering to work, we must be willing to suffer. This is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering because it's in embracing suffering that suffering ceases. When we find that we are suffering, then we go to the actual suffering that is present. We open completely to it, we welcome it, we concentrate on it, allowing it to be exactly what it is. And that means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom and despair and doubt and fear in order to understand that they cease rather than running away from them. So the practice of mindfulness asks that we turn towards whatever's happening, pain or pleasure, neutral, boring, interesting, and we simply notice it. We notice how it arises, we notice how it stays for a while, has an effect on our heart and mind-body, and we notice how it passes away, passes into cessation. The Third Noble Truth is the truth of cessation. Everything passes into cessation. We don't have to do anything with it, necessarily. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to get rid of it. We don't have to replace it. We don't have to make it look better. We simply hold it in this space of awareness, which is profoundly liberating, when we think, in, when we think in, as we may have done in the past, that we have to do something with it. So no matter what arises in your meditation, see if you can bring that presence of mind to simply hold it, notice it, feel it, sense it, and see that we can be at ease in the middle of whatever storm arises. We can practice that when our body starts hurting. Good Housekeeping magazine said there was 84 different unpleasant sensations in the body. (laughs) And maybe you've experienced all of them today or at least a lot of them. Tingling, tightness, burning, searing, stabbing, pinching, gripping, burning. I was on a, on a three month retreat some years ago and I had this peculiar sensation where I, the, my sit bones would go numb or it would start getting really painful. So it was painful to sit which was a drag since I was on a three-month retreat and I was sitting all day. And rather than be with the experience, which was quite excruciating, of, of uh, numbness and stabbing and all of that, I kept creating these um, chairs that you could sit in that were suspended from the ceiling that you wouldn't actually have to put your backside in, but you'd allow you to sit. I didn't market them, of course, but it was my way of not being with the experience. You know, the mind will do anything. The mind, we, we have a mind that fixes, fixes, strategizes, always trying to overcome a problem. That's how we've survived, as Heather was saying yesterday. And yet it's always on overdrive. And there's often a lot of wisdom in that part of the mind when we facing difficult experience. A similar experience when I was teaching a mindfulness-based stress reduction class uh, in a a chronic pain clinic at Kaiser up in Santa Rosa. And uh, this woman came in. She'd been having chronic neck pain for about 10 years. And this was in the middle of the course, maybe week four, week five, when people start to get a sense of what mindfulness can do for chronic pain. And she came in really excited and was very excited to check in about her practice And what she said was, you know, I've had this pain in my neck for 10 years, I've hated, I've really gone through all painkillers and doctors, and um, it's really been hard to live with. And with the mindfulness practice, I, for the first time, actually really felt like I could turn towards it and feel it. And what was amazing, it actually wasn't that bad. All the tightness and the resistance and the fear and the constriction and the, the hating of it, that was really really tight and uncomfortable, but the actual pain underneath all of that, which was sort of being lost over the years of reactivity, was actually bearable. It wasn't pleasant, it wasn't easy, but she could see how turning towards it created a lot of space and a lot of possibility about how to live with that situation. So we have the dukkha of the body, and then we have dukkha of the mind. I think you've all been seeing a lot of the dukkha of the mind. The suffering that comes from an untrained mind. You know, it's a little, sometimes I feel like it's a little like a torture chamber in here, you know, we we bring you into this white room (laughs) and we say, sit and do nothing and be present. You know, and there's this raging, monkey Labrador mind that's just running and fighting and bouncing off the walls and going nuts. Because it's not what it's used to doing. It's used to having tasks to do and used to thinking and planning and strategizing and remembering and regretting and, and it's torturous. You know The different minds that we carry within us, we have the, the catastrophizing mind. We sit here, everything's okay. We've been fed, we're warm, we're safe, we slept. but We start thinking, well, what if this knee pain becomes really bad that it's so painful I can't walk out of here and I have to go home in an ambulance? You know? <laughs> I mean, we think those thoughts. What if I left the gas on? Did I leave the gas on at home? I don't know. Did I did I lock the door when I left the house? We I mean, imagine these these terrible scenarios. <coughs> or we have this self-torturing mind, you know, at the end of the day we'll be feeling tired and the voice of compassion would come come up and say, "Oh, you know, you've really practiced hard today. I think it's it's okay to go to bed early. Just take take go go to, go to bed, and you can get up early and practice early in the morning. So you skip out before the last sit, and then you're lying in bed, and the, the other another mind stream voice comes. You are so lazy. You are so pathetic. You can't even meditate till nine o'clock. <laughs> yada 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 yada. We have these these minds that these so these these these." characters in our mind that, you know, cause havoc, conflict, especially if we take them too seriously. Or well, the comparing mind. Anybody been comparing themselves here while you've been here? Who's the best meditator? Who's sitting the most still? You know you know who you are. Who walks the slowest? We have a we have a we have a prize at the end of the retreat. You know? the most mindful walking meditator. They could be completely checked out and thinking about the next cup of tea or ice cream they're gonna have, but they look really good. (laughs) My colleague has a note when he's doing his walking practice and he's noticing he's he's in that mode of walking really slow. The note he has is looking good, looking good. (laughs) funny, isn't it? These minds, that we, the thoughts that we have, where do they come from? They just come out of nowhere. And then we have the judging mind, which is not dissimilar to the comparing mind. We can do a lot of judging based on comparing, well, I'm better than them, they're much better meditators than me, or I'm really bad compared to those other folks over there who really look like they're Buddhas and know what they're doing. And then a lot of you have talked about, how the mind how you notice the mind beating up on you the judging mind the critic being a bad meditator not being mindful enough being a terrible buddhist um, not being able to follow more than one breath or two breaths and you know we can be really cruel with ourselves that mind if, and, and and it can be uh, an awful reality if we actually believe it This is one of my favorite cartoons. It's called A Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. You might recognize yourself. This is is from the um, Rhymes with Orange cartoon strip, which is a wonderful cartoon. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all your flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. That's a popular one on retreats. You know, We go through the invent, invent, inventory of stuff. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And resign yourself to believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. Sound familiar? And what happens? We feel pathetic at the end of it. And we feel miserable. We feel that's another form of suffering. It's important with all those habits of mind to feel the suffering nature of them. Any particular habit that causes suffering. The more we attune to the suffering quality. You know, I noticed I had a very strong judgmental mind when I started practice, and um, after some years, suddenly I was in in meditation, and I suddenly felt the impact of all those harsh, cruel very nasty judgments. You're not good enough, you never get anywhere, your life's a mess, or you know, whatever the story was, I don't remember. It's all kind of a blur. It's all kind of the same, really. And to, to let the impact, to let yourself feel the impact can actually shift your relationship to that part of your mind. Because we actually feel, rather than just hear this tape loop going on and on and on, which we often do, when we feel the suffering, it allows some compassion to arise. It allows us to acknowledge that it's really painful and that it's really, an, it's really a habit that we want to let go of, making us miserable. <clears throat> so mindfulness practice brings about great uh, spaciousness and freedom with our thoughts. We get to see that we are not our thoughts. Thoughts arise and pass in the field of awareness. We are not, we don't have to take ownership of our thoughts. The thoughts are not who we are. Yet we so think, we're so, we're so possessive of our thoughts as if they are me, they're not who you are. It's also why we emphasize in this practice. You know, this is an in-the-body practice. Often, there's often an association with mindfulness, being, uh, meditation being an out-of-the-body experience, and This experience of bliss or cosmic oneness or union. It's all sort of somewhere out here. <laughs> this practice is about being in your body. The body is always in the present moment. The senses are always in the present moment. The mind is mostly not in the present moment. And so the more we practice inhabiting, feeling our breath, feeling our body, feeling our feet, feeling our legs, feeling our arms, So right now, as you're listening, feel your body, feel your buttocks and your feet touching the floor. Know that you're in your body. It's a way of grounding out of the habitual hypnosis of the mind. So we have the suffering of the mind, we have the suffering of our emotions, the difficult storms and pains and wounding that come through our lives, our heart, from the past, from the present. And again, the practice is to bring, learning how to bring a kind awareness to our heart when we're suffering, when we're in pain, when we're feeling lonely and sad and grief-stricken and fearful and anxious. And when we turn to meet our emotions, when we turn to meet our emotional pain, this, again, tremendous healing and transformation can happen. And we don't have to do anything with them. We don't have to fix ourselves. We simply have to hold a kind awareness to whatever's happening in our experience. This is from poet Rashani. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words, through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open, to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole, while learning to sing. a very beautiful, poetic way of describing the potential of what we're doing here. Lastly, before I move on, um, the Buddha also talked about the suffering that arises uh, because of change, because of impermanence, because everything being transient, there's nothing that stays around long enough that we can hold on to, that we can find enough stability or traction. And we're constantly seeking something that will last, and nothing ever does, so we keep falling, keep falling, keep falling. So one of the insights the Buddha had when he started on his journey to, to, to awakening was he realized that everything ate, got, got old, got sick and died. There was nothing around, around that was reliable. And he said, why don't I seek that which is unaging, which is deathless, which is, which is the ultimate refuge? So there's the suffering in life, the suffering in our hearts and minds and bodies and our practice. And then there's the cause of suffering the cause of the self created pain that we find ourselves in. And Heather spoke to this some yesterday, and I'm just going to reiterate some of those points and say a little more. So the Buddha talked about what the the, the heart of the heart of suffer, the heart of the cause of suffering that we experience is this tendency we have to struggle with reality. And how we struggle with reality, we, we're constantly seeking something other than what is, and we're constantly resisting what is. We're usually in a battle, we're very rarely at ease accepting with stillness and openness the truth of our experience. We're usually wanting something a little better, it's more interesting, more juicy, more fun, more quiet, more, you know if it's meditation, we're wanting more peace or more bliss and less thoughts and you know, this rather than just accepting, being at ease, being in stillness with what is. And it creates a kind of a restlessness. We're always toppling forward, We're always running ahead of ourselves, trying to find, trying to get, trying to hold on to something that's inevitably going to change. And we have endless desires. The mind is a desire machine. Uh, desires of themselves aren't a problem. They just come and go, come and go like a lot of thoughts. We get we get stuck when we when we when we fixate on particular desire. When we when we when we get attached. When we get a, when we get attached to some particular result, some outcome, something happening as we want it to happen. And we all have experiences of that of getting caught, getting fixated, and wanting our life or someone or experience to be a certain way. We do it all the time, just even with our meditation. We want our breath to be a little smoother, or our body to be more pain-free, or the person next to us to stop breathing so loud, or the food to be somewhat different. And the the desiring mind is endless, and of course, desire creates more desire. I once was working with a company, it was a hedge fund, and there was during the time of the, the when the market was doing a little better than it is now. So they were doing very well. And this particular day I walked in and I was working with one of the traders and he had just made a trade that made the company $50 million in that day. And I went to see him uh, and I expected to see him really happy and, you know, proud of himself, and we get into, I get into his office, and he's really stressed, and he's not looking so happy. And I'm like, what's going on? He just made this amazing trade, and and everybody lots of money. And he said, yeah, but you know, if I just bought a little earlier and held on just a little longer and sold a little later, I probably could have made five or ten million more. <laughs> and it was such a glowing example of it's never enough. Whatever we want, whatever we seek, that part of the mind, the desiring mind, is never satisfied. We attain what we desire, and what happens? Something else arises. We have the perfect meal, or the perfect day, and then the mind's like, oh, well, what about tomorrow? Maybe we can have the same thing all over again. It's never at rest, it's ceaseless, and it's suffering. It's a cause of suffering, because we're not able to be at ease in the moment. And what happens is it takes us out of ourselves, it takes us out of finding the peace and the ease and the freedom that's already, already here. What's here prior to the desire? Prior to the, the wanting and the longing, what's here? When we finally get what we're wanting, there's a moment of peace because the desire momentum has ceased. We think we're happy because we've got the object, but actually we're happy because that momentum, that, that restless momentum that leaves us always feeling deficient has momentarily abated. So when you're caught in this movement of design notice the belief system that's running. Think about something that you want right now. Think about something you have been desiring. Right? Notice the be- notice the belief system which is, you know, what will happen if I get this thing? This person, this object, this experience, this. You know, we 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 the fuel we fueled by the power of the belief system. I will I'll be happy when I get this thing, I'll be satisfied, I'll be peaceful, I can finally rest when all these conditions are met. And so we strive to attain them and we get there and it's like great. Now I want some more things, some more stuff. One of my teachers, Punjaji, used to say the thief of peace is the desire for the transient. The thief of peace is the desire for the transient. Rumi puts it this way. He doesn't put it this way, actually. He puts it somewhere. Else. It's written wrong. Basically saying the w- th- that which is doing the looking is the one that you're looking for. We think it's out there. We think we keep looking out there, and we, we, you know, mindfulness is turning the lens back here to saying, oh, it's actually already right here. Peace is available. It's actually a lovely quote a little piece from uh, Gendon Rinpoche. I'll just read a couple of lines from it. He says, Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it accompanies you. It is always available to you and accompanies you every instant. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's this... Searching and peace can't coexist in the same mind. So right now, as you look to your experience, notice if there's anything missing. Are you really lacking? When you look to the evidence of your present moment experience right now, is there anything missing? Is there anything lacking? So it's important to not, you know, with any teaching that you hear, it's very easy to hear a teaching go, and to start using it to beat ourselves up. Oh my God! Now I'm so now I know about all these other things I didn't know I was doing, and I'm doing it really badly, and I'm mean, I'm just a terrible person now. I'm, I didn't know I was grasping it, but now I'm grasping, and so just be watchful of that mind that that takes something and then. You know, this isn't, this isn't to provide ammunition for your critic, this is to provide you with information so you can see how, how we cause suffering. That's the point of these teachings. They're all reminders. We all really know this stuff already. We just forget. And a lot of you have heard this stuff already, and we forget. And so we need to be reminded, reminded, oh yeah, happiness is available right here and now. <laughs> So notice the next time you get caught in a desire, and a longing, in a, in, a, in a fantasy for something. Notice how it creates a tunnel vision, like the world sort of falls away and we just fixate on this one thing. We get a slight contracted inside the body, fixated, tight. We feel deficient, we feel lacking until we get this thing that we're longing for. And The flip side of the grasping is the aversion, is resisting, not wanting what we're getting. How many of you have been resisting the moment today? Or how many moments of resistance have you noticed today? (laughs) Hundreds? Thousands? (laughs) It's amazing how many moments, if we really track our experience, there's a lot of moments where there's a slight flinching, a slight contraction, a slight pulling back from, from the experience, from ourselves, from each other. And again, it's fueled by a similar belief system. If this thing goes away, if I get rid of this thing, I'll be happy. You know, if this person stops breathing so loudly, I'll almost be in nirvana. <laughs> but they're really obscuring my ability to be there. If only they served good coffee in the morning, my you know, I'd be you know, I'd be om- almost in nibbana. And we get you know, just it's also useful to notice this this. Um, this phenomenon called yogi mind. Yogi is a, is a meditator, is a spiritual practitioner, and yogi mind is a phenomenon that happens on retreat where, we, where, where things get over-exaggerated. The mind doesn't have much to, to focus on during the retreat, there's not a lot going on, so we fixate on certain things and it gets blown way out of proportion. So something like, like the sound of someone coughing, or someone breathing loudly, or someone slamming the door, And, you know, our mind just erupts in a fury. We want to kill somebody because they're breathing too loud, you know. Never mind loving-kindness. Somebody, actually a few people asked today in the groups, well, you know, if something's difficult or painful, why would I want to be with it? Like, that sounds really dumb. You know my life, I just go somewhere else, you know, I change the channel, you know, I go out, and you know I you know have a beer, you know Why would I want to feel something that 's painful? That sounds like pain <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. Why would we want to do that? Well, pain is inevitable in life, and so we have a choice. Do we want to always be reacting, and resisting, and running, and afraid of pain, or do we want to find a way, a capacity in ourselves to be at ease, to find a place of steadiness and balance, where we're not so afraid, we're not so resistant. So when we go into a difficult situation, like the situation Suzuki Roshi was pointing to about, when a loved one is in hospital and is really in in dire straits, that we have presence of mind to meet, meet those situations. And we'll all meet those sooner or later in our lives. If not here. So, I want to tell you a story that I often tell uh, around this theme. Um, and it's a time that, from an experience when I was meditating in India, and um, is when it, I was, new, I was not, new to Vipassana and I was in a monastery in Bodh Gaya, and we were on this 20 day retreat in this lovely Thai monastery. Um, and um, at that time the, there was a big festival going on, a lot of Tibetan pilgrims were there, and so a lot of merchants come and sell blankets and all kinds of things to the pilgrims. And, and one of the things they also sell is. A lot of travel agents come to offer cheap tickets here and there to different parts of India. And so this travel agency set up shop outside the, the monastery and um, put a loudspeaker on top of the, 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 the stall. And it was right opposite the monastery grounds. And, um, it was, uh, and it had this tape loop running of selling bus tickets to all around India. And it started really early in the morning when the pilgrims would come by And it would go like this, it would go, hello, 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 hello. (laughs) And then it would say some words in Hindi. (laughs) And then you'd hear, Delhi, Bombay, Calcutta, (laughs) (laughs) Panaris. And it would stop after a couple of minutes, whatever it was saying about cheap bus tickets. And then it would rewind which you'd hear, because it was not a very sophisticated (laughs) hi-fi system. And then you'd hear, hello, (laughs) hello, 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 hello. (laughs) This is Bombay, Calcutta, (laughs) Delhi. (laughs) And this was was like day two or three of the meditation retreat. We had 17 days to go, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And there was this, this Building was all concrete. There was, you know, everything was. Concrete. There was nothing, we were on mats on the floor, so the, the sound was just echoing off like crazy. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> and we weren't allowed to leave the monastery grounds, so we couldn't, you know, do some non-violent sabotage of the speaker system and, <laughs> or buy all the tickets and get them to leave or whatever we could do to. So we just sat there, you know, hello, 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 aversion, 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 hating, 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 homicidal feelings, <laughs> <something like> <laughs> going kind of nuts for a while, you know, it was i mean it was just <laughs> shut up, and. You know, there wasn't anything to do, and the wonderful thing about being in India is it forces you to surrender. So over time, the mind starts to yield, and, and it becomes less intrusive. And it's just over over the days, it became less it became I became less reactive, and more just it more became sound. And it became went from, from from unpleasant to neutral, and at some point, it became funny. Every time I'd hear the hello, 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 it's like oh, you know. Sometimes the power would go out for a few hours. They'd be like, oh, where did it go? And, oh, it's back. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, 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 hello. (laughs) And so what the teaching for that for me, and why it relates to what I've been saying, is that it was a teaching about that the the happiness and peace wasn't dependent on that outer circumstance changing or going away. That actually peace was possible even in the middle of it. It all depended on my state of mind. It all depends on the level of reactivity. When I was reactive, it was nightmare. When I was hating it, I was in torture. When I was at peace with it, it was just sound. Just more sound, just the birds, the people, the street noises, the cars, horns. And so I got to see, oh, it's really about what's happening in our mind and not what's happening out there. It's a metaphor for how we live our lives. As A. says, it's not the sound that disturbs us, but we disturb the sound. We disturb the sound through our reactivity. We disturb the world through our reactivity. So um, I'm running out of time to do the, four, the third and fourth Noble Truth. The fourth Noble Truth is the, is the path leading to the end of suffering, the, the way which incorporates every aspect of our lives, from ethics, from livelihood, to meditation and wise action. The third noble truth is really the, um, the liberating part of the teachings that uh, the Buddha speaks to, that cessation from suffering is possible. That it's possible just in that moment, like in that moment I was experiencing in Gaya, that peace is possible when we, when, we, when we allow aversion and resistance and hatred and greed to, to pass into cessation. We don't have to get rid of them. We don't have to do anything. We simply notice it. We notice we see, we understand the pain it causes, and letting go happens. Letting go, we relinquish. Nirvana lit the word the literal translation for Nirvana, which is a, a, the sort of the, the goal of, of Buddhist practice, which is the third Noble Truth, literally means called out." we've cooled out the fires that burn. This is from the Buddha. He says, Enraptured with, with lust, enraged with anger, and blinded by delusion or ignorance, overwhelmed, the mind ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, and at the ruin of both. And they experience mental pain and grief. But if greed and anger and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both. And they experience no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbāna, visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensive to the wise. So we're practicing cooling out, cooling out the habit of seeking, of grasping, of holding on, of attachment, of fear, of (coughs) resistance, of hatred. We're cooling out the continual fight that we have with experience. So we can taste, even if it's just for a moment, we have a moment of nibbana. As Buddha Buddhadasa, a wonderful Thai meditation master, would talk about, we all have moments of nibbana where we where we're not fighting, where we're sitting, where we're doing our walking meditation outside, and there's just pure presence. There's just connection with the walking. There's no one doing the walking. Walking is happening. The birds are singing and sounds are heard, and there's just simplicity, ease, peace, connection. There's no leaning forward or away from experience. There's no wanting to be somewhere else. There's just complete simplicity and entering fully the moment. And if we, if we dissected that moment, we would see, oh, that's a, that's a moment where the mind and the heart is at peace. It's at rest. It's not wanting anything. It's not wanting something from the moment. It's not moving it back from the moment. It's just meeting things as they are and we almost dissolve into that moment the self that's always hungry and looking and restless gets quiet there's just a certain isness or a suchness where we're just fully immersed in the truth of the moment and we all have that potential we all have that capacity we've all had those moments we often don't recognize those moments those moments are often very peaceful, very quiet, very easeful. And the mind that's more used to stimulation, and busyness, and activity will be like, oh, well, there's not much happening here. I may as well go get a cup of tea. But when we look at those moments, when we, often we say, oh, nothing is going on. Take a look when nothing is going on. Because often what's, what's not going on is the fire of greed and hatred and resistance are not going on. And that's often the doorway to finding a quality of peace, or ease, or contentment, or satisfaction. So when those forces of greed and hatred cease, what's left? What's left in your mind? Notice, when when those forces vacate, and there's moments of peace, of tranquility, of love, of emptiness, of calm, connection, and we get a, we get a, we get a window, uh, we get a look into the window of our nature when it's not obscured by the clouds, the storms, the habits of our mind. The tendencies that we get so caught in our life that seems so thick and so who we are of wanting and longing and resisting and fighting and struggling, from from the perspective of these teachings, they're habits that have sort of, you know, they're accretions to our nature. They're not ultimately who we are. When those fall away, our nature is revealed to be inherently at peace, inherently at ease, inherently beautiful. So let's sit together for a few moments. And just notice as you settle into the moment if there's any leaning forward or away, or simply being with things as they are. The Buddha said, if I didn't think this was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do so. period of walking for about half an hour we'll come back for some meditation and chanting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.